Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Craig and welcome to another episode of Football Kit Memories. Today I meet journalist and broadcaster Sam Delaney. We cover the many thrills and spills of a 20 year career in the media, as well as Sam's own experiences in the world of football. During the show I ask Sam to pick out three of his favourite football shirts and tell us a little bit about what they mean to him. There's West Ham, Lazio and England at Italia 90. You can listen to this and other episodes of Football Kit Memories on all major audio platforms including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please do subscribe, share, and above all, enjoy the podcast. Okay, so today on the podcast, I'm joined by journalist and broadcaster Sam Delaney. How are you doing, Sam? I'm good, thanks, mate. Happy to be here. So, mate, you've had quite a storied career in the, the world of media. Uh, I've got a bit of a resume here. You can correct me or tell me if I've missed anything, but I've got print journalism. You've written for The Guardian, The Telegraph, The Big Issue. You were editor of Heat magazine for a little while. Uh, you're yeah. a published author. You've done TV, you've done radio, and more latterly, you've done podcasting. So you're the co-creator of uh, Top Flight Time Machine with Andy Dawson, and you also do a West Ham podcast called Come On Your Irons with The Athletic as well. Yeah, um, it's a pretty long list, mate. You've uh, tried your hand at quite a few different things. I have, yeah, I have actually. I've been doing it. I think I started working '97, and I've I've always sort of I've, I've got a bit of a short attention span. But to be honest, I'm glad because I started out wanting to just be a print journalist. I just wanted to work in magazines. I, you know, started when I when I left university. It was it was in the era of like Loaded magazine. And right. I'd always been a magazine addict, like an obsessive about magazines, sort of bloke who just like stacks and stacks of magazines in my house from an early age. And um, that's all I wanted to do. And I was lucky enough to do it for the first few years of my career. But then when other offers or opportunities came up, I sort of always, I always just said yes to, to anything that sounded like exciting or a laugh. I didn't really ever hesitate to say yes. Yeah. Uh, to to anything and I was lucky to get opportunities but the thing is for me I just learned about journalism and, and being creative and stuff from from magazines in in an era when magazines were still a really big deal and all the things I learned from then I've basically been using ever since if I'm honest right. I'm like you know whether I, I've, I've worked in news I've worked you know on on, on live radio for years I've, I've worked across different subject matters from quite serious things like politics or mental health um, down to like just daft, frivolous stuff like we do on Top Flight Time Machine or whatever, or foot, lots of football stuff on TalkSport. But I've always sort of had what I call a magazine mentality. 
okay. which is cu- coming up with with like fun ideas that can make any subject, even if it seems quite dry, yeah, um, sort of fun, exciting, compelling. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. that was something that I sort of learned off my mentors in the magazine business. Right. Um, and and even though I was only you know in that I, I wasn't I was, I was sort of I, I still dabble in magazines, but you know that mag- that industry isn't what it once was. But mm-hmm. it had a big influence on me, and and the people in it are the sort of best people I ever worked with. Right. And uh, and the stuff I learned, and 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 Andy Dawson, who's you know my my main colleague nowadays, because we devote so much of our time to making Top Flight Time Machine, he'll he'll say the same thing. We didn't actually meet really through magazines. Or maybe we did a but but we we both had grown up loving magazines at opposite ends of the country, round yep. about the same age, and we've both just been magazine obsessives. And still now, even the way we approach doing Top Flight Time Machine, I think the way in which we come up with ideas is entirely informed by our mutual love of the same magazines that we grew up reading. Right. So things like the the first year or two of Loaded magazine, when it was not like a lad mag as such. I mean, it was, but not not the way we understand that term today. It was like a, a very smart, well-written, very smart, well-written, edgy, innovative, brilliant, you know, magazine yeah. and viz. And yeah, I think both of us have the same sort of point of view. And, and we see it like a magazine. We see, you know, now magazines, you can't sell magazines now. It's a dying industry, which is a real shame. But I think the spirit lives on because uh, in various ways. But, you know, a- Andy and I just just love it. We both worked in magazines. We both grew up reading them and loving them and studying them like nerds forensically collecting them. And and we still, you know, we approach the show. It happens to be in audio form rather than print form. But the creative sort of approach of it, the mindset of it, the way in which we kind of drive the whole thing is basically based on a magazine. Right. So kind of which of those mediums, all those mediums you've worked in, which would be the one that you're most comfortable or is your most favourite to work in? Well, I, I, to be honest, I've always enjoyed writing. That was that was my only, I never thought, I never for one moment thought when I was, you know, a kid or whatever, that I was going to one day be on TV or radio or doing any of that stuff. I, I just wanted to write. I just wanted to write. I wanted to be writing in the magazines that I loved. I used to love like the fate for I loved to smash hits when I was a kid. And then I kind of graduated to the face and, and loved that. And then when loaded came out, that was like a, a mind blowing thing. And I wanted to write stuff like that about pop culture or just the, the lives that me and my mates lived in yeah. a sort of funny and, you know, trying to be funny, but intelligent and real. And that's all I wanted to do. And I still love writing. But, I mean, you know, I write about different things now, but I absolutely love it. And the other things they just, presented themselves to you because print I didn't realize this when I went into it but but you know print is always well is, has always been a sort of an avenue to other opportunities in the media such as right broad broadcast you know a gateway drug it was a gateway drug and you know when you start getting offers like that one it appeals to your ego and vanity because you can <laughs> say to your mum I'm going to be on the box right yeah. And um, and two, in those days, at least, it often, it usually paid more. Right. You know, but the the main thing about all of it, and, you know, for a while I worked in digital, like for a few years, I, I ran all of the digital content. I was head of content at Comedy Central in the UK, and that was all digital stuff. It was like creating and commissioning comedy for their online platform. Yeah. So I've done that sort of stuff as well. But the thing is, 
from a per, from if you take all the like you know the creative bollocks out of it that I've been talking about <laughs> in terms of career and making a living, you got to make a living. Yeah. And if I'd just stuck to print, I probably would have got into a lot of sticky situations. I mean, I have been in sticky situations, haven't we all? <laughs> but what I mean is, I, I'm I'm grateful today that I did say yes to all these opportunities that came my way. Yeah. I had mates in in the print business, in the magazine business, who used to say to me when I first started going off and doing all these other things, they used to call me the, a whore, right? They go, you fucking whore, you go and do everything. They, I mean, like, tongue-in-cheek, you yeah. know? And I never, but I didn't care that they said that. I thought it was funny. I was like, yeah. I mean, what, what do you want me to be? Like, loyal to one particular niche of journalism, right? Yeah. If someone's ringing me up and saying, I know you get paid 150 quid a day for writing on that magazine, but we will pay you £500 a day to come and just do like an afternoon in a TV studio, reading out a script off an autocue that some other dickhead's written. Right? <laughs> I go, yeah, all right. <laughs> very much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, mate, I've got one more question I wanted to ask you about your career before we start talking about some football shirts. Um, you're the kind of, uh, you've got a lot of really funny celebrity anecdotes. You met a lot of famous people over the years. And what I wanted yeah. to ask you is, which celebrity or famous person has been the biggest kind of surprise to you? Did you have maybe a preconceived notion and you've met them and that preconceived notion was completely wrong, either, you know, negative or positive? Um, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, people always think, that, you know what people usually want is who's the worst celebrity. And I don't really have as much as I would like in terms of, ah, oh, that person is a complete, bastard <laughs> which I, I always get the impression people want me to reveal that because i've noticed that those are the sort of stories that people love to exchange i see they love to especially if it's about someone who has a nice reputation yeah and they go apparently my mate's a journalist and he met them and apparently in real life that person's a complete dickhead and a bastard <laughs> but i don't unfortunately i don't have many stories that, to tell like that and even if i did i kind of think people base assumptions about famous people sometimes on the tiniest amount of evidence like i might have met someone i met um tom york once right i interviewed okay. him when i was i was working at itn on five news i was a reporter and i was doing a report about the stop the war campaign right and and tom york was quite heavily involved in that so i got to go down and interview him and a couple of other members of radiohead and i was delighted by that because i love love radiohead and 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 him and he was a he was a nightmare. He was just really difficult. He had that whole kind of all journalists are bad. You're all bastards. You're all contributing to all of this terrible thing. Right, right. And and, and I don't know. It, on that day, he seemed to be like someone, one of these conspiracy theorists who thought that the the media were, you know, in involved in all of the worst things. And yeah. and but. But do you know what? That was one day I met him and it was probably a very emotional time because yeah. we were going to war that and a lot of people felt angry and and passionate about that. And or he might have just woken up miserable that day. I'd hate to think that anyone I'm sure you would hate to think that anyone had met you on your worst day. Exactly. And that was the only time they'd met you. And then they were going around just defining you. And those stories spread because people love to tell stories that they think are insightful about celebrities. Yeah. They love it. They go, well. Huh, I know you think he's a nice guy, but I bumped into him in Sainsbury's once. And, uh, you know, and and he was a nightmare because he took ages bagging up his food. And I was just sat there having to wait. And people love to retell and retell these tiny stories about people. So anyway, sorry if that disappoints you. Uh, i tell you one thing that I was thinking about the other day. 
was that I was I'm delighted to have you know sort of um, got to know Sean Ryder quite well, which is amazing when you when you get to know someone who was genuinely one of your bona fide heroes when you were a kid. So Sean Ryder was a hero and a role model to me when I was like about sixteen, <laughs> and 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 I was thinking the other day um, that since I've got to know him. I gave up drink and all the other stuff, drugs and everything about coming up for six years ago. Okay. And I realized I didn't, I didn't really get to know Sean until after that, but it had never really crossed my mind for us. So I thought this guy who is a, a, one of the country's most legendary hedonists, right? Yeah, yeah, His yeah. whole reputation is built on getting out of it. And that, and if I'm honest, that's probably one of the things that made him appeal to me when I was a teenager. Right. My friendship with him has had, has had on my part at least no drugs or drink involved with it whatsoever right um and you know and he's well aware of the fact he's always shown quite an interest in my sobriety do you know what i mean but it's just not really an issue whatsoever and i often think i think a lot of people come to me and go sam you don't drink or anything like that how do you deal with the boredom and i always go mate i am never bored i am never boring and you know what one great thing to say is that look since i got sober i've become mates with sean Ryder, mate so it obviously <laughs> doesn't hit sobriety doesn't hinder you exactly. do you know what i mean yeah 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 and no one's bothered if he's not bothered then no one's gonna be exactly dispelling the myth entirely wow mm. so mate you've picked out three football shirts that we're going to talk about today and before we get onto your first one what i wanted to ask you is what if anything do football shirts mean to you in general i love football shirts um always have uh i guess from from an early age i think it's one of the things that first gets you into football you collect panini stickers yeah. and you study the kits don't you it's what makes sticker albums so amazing that you page you turn from one spread to the other and on each page you're confronted with this consistent sort of beautiful array of shirts or the, the, this sort of uniform kind of aesthetic across two pages on a panini sticker sticker album yeah. and you study all of them and i think yeah i think I think that might be one of the things I, I, d- I definitely think Panini sticker albums were what got me really into football in a massive way. Cause you, I think before you start watching the actual games, you obsess first over the other stuff, like the players names, the kits, what country they're from, what their stats are, all of that sort of thing. And then after that, you slowly start to actually watch the game itself a bit more. Yeah. And I think kits are a huge part of that learning the kits, learning the colors. Um, and then when I got older, I remember, like I said earlier, I read, I used to be really into the Face magazine, which was like a sort of portal into this cool world of Clubland that, yeah. you know, I was, I was too young to be a part of, but I read the magazine and felt like I was sort of like voyeuristically enjoying it. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and I treated it like a Bible, right? I just thought anything that was ever in it was the epitome of cool. And Football had been a bit of a problem because I was really into football. It was my first passion from a young age. But in the 80s, especially, it became deeply uncool. People forget that now. Right, but it, when you're at school, and I was at a normal comprehensive school, but even there, if you wanted to be in with, you know, the, the coolest kids and the arty kids or the, or the kids who were really into music, basically the ones who hung around the prettiest girls. Yeah. Being into football was not really because it was during time of hooliganism and the European ban and wasn't something you bang on about. So, but I, I always was into it and I was always going to West Ham from a young age, but it wasn't something you talked about a huge amount to certain people. 
And then I remember, and then I remember seeing in the face around the end of the 80s, towards 1990, when Italia 90 sort of um, had quite a big effect. I remember seeing like they had a fashion shoot, but with blokes and girls wearing continental football shirts in the shoot like AC Milan or Barcelona or international shirts like Argentina. Yeah. And I thought, fucking hell, that's brilliant. And <laughs> foreign shirts were harder to come by then. And there was soccer scene in, in um, Carnaby Street. Carnaby, yeah, love it. But I, I, other than that, there wasn't, there wasn't all the, obviously there wasn't all the websites and stuff. So it just seems so exotic and rare. And suddenly they're saying, oh yeah, people have started, this article said people have started wearing like continental football shirts to clubs now and again i was too young to be going to these clubs but i was like fucking hell that's so cool yeah um so i had this barcelona shirt that my brother had brought back from spain for me and i dug it out because it was quite old but it still just about fit me so i started wearing it like (laughs) out with my mates and it took a while for them to get their heads around it they're like they probably didn't read the face do you know what i mean they're like what the fuck are you wearing a barcelona shirt for you dickhead when you're out (laughs) at a party on saturday night and I probably was a dickhead, but yeah, basically I, I like you and I'm sure all of your guests. Yeah. What, uh, what's the word? Fetishized them quite yeah. a lot from an early age. Yeah. So actually that, that brings us nice, quite nicely onto the first shirt you picked from a time when football was quite uncool, like you say, and it's the West yeah. Ham home shirt between 83 and 85 by Adidas. Yeah. So it's quite, um, I bet it's, it's a pretty iconic kit. It's, yeah. um, because it's got a uh, the blue hoop across the sort of middle of it, large blue hoop yeah. that had our first ever shirt sponsor written inside the hoop, which was Avco Trust. I think originally it said Avco Trust. Right. I'm not quite sure what they were. I think they're an insurance firm or something. And then, then it then it changed to just Avco, and uh, and it's quite iconic because until then, yeah, I mean West Ham's. Every team has a traditional shirt, don't they? And then they dick around with it sometimes, right? Um, and but West Ham shirts really should be claret body, blue sleeves, white shorts, right? And but once in a while they dick around, and this was the first little bit of dicking around they'd been on the home shirt for quite a few years because suddenly there was this big hoop across it. Don't think anyone had really done a, a single hoop before that I'm aware of. Um, the public, you know, the, the hooped clubs. We're not a hooped club. Celtic and QPR are hooped clubs, you know. And uh, so I just thought it looked really cool. And but the main thing is, it was the first West Ham shirt I owned. I think. I think before that, my my brother, one of my other brother, I've got three brothers. One sports West Ham, the other two sport other clubs. And but my West Ham supporting older brother had like given me old ones of his that I'd had put on that were too big for me or whatever. But the first one that I'd had as a gift bought for me which I think was on maybe my ninth birthday. But I've got some great pictures that I treasure um, of my ninth birthday party at my mum's house, where she still lives, of me and all my mates. We had a football match at the local rec, Dogshit Park, as it was known. (laughs) And then back to my mum's for a proper, you know, tea party. We had hot dogs and then jelly and ice cream. And it famously descended into a massive food fight, like proper food fight that still old mates of mine still talk about to this day. Yeah, inside the house. Yeah, and I've got photos of just before it kicked off because we're all there and about three of us are in West Ham shirts and there's a couple of Spurs 
Right. And I think there might be a rogue man you in it or something like that. But <laughs> the shirts all look so mint. I've got a couple of pictures from that day and they look so mint. You know, oh, you're wow. so chuffed to have picture original pictures of yourself in those old shirts. What's the what's the deal with you in West Ham then? Where does that come from? Is that a family thing or did you grow up around there or something? No, no, neither of those. I'm from West London. Oh, right. Um, so I'm from the opposite side of London. It's not a family thing, really, although I do have an older brother's West Ham fan who obviously would have been a big influence on it. But uh, my oldest brother's a Spurs fan. My, I've got another brother who's a QPR fan, which would have been our local team. I mean, we grew up on the estate that the Griffin Park, Brentford's ground, is pretty much on, right? So it is, it is, it's pretty much attached to the estate. So we couldn't have been more local to Brentford. So by rights, I should have been a Brentford fan. They've always been kind of my second team. Right. And, uh, but my best mate who lived on this estate um, a few doors down, Alex Jones, his dad, Malcolm, who was sort of like the toughest, coolest bloke on the, the estate who had, who looked a bit like Mike Reed from EastEnders and had... <laughs> And had like, you know, always wore a cool leather jacket and drove a sports car nice. and was just a, a, a right, an impressive geezer. He, um, you know, he was a, he was from Bethnal Green, I think. He was from the East End and had moved here when he got married. And and he was just a big influence. My, I didn't live with my dad. My dad wasn't around. I mean, I, I had a relationship with him, but he didn't live with us. Right, right. And, uh, and... He wasn't, he's a Spurs fan, really, my dad, but he's not, he wasn't particularly a partisan sort of guy. He kind of loves football, but wasn't one of those guys who'd go on in a big way about club rivalries. He kind of doesn't like that, actually. And, you know, and understandably, I mean, I've got so into, you know, that kind of just being so passionate about your club and hating other clubs. It's unhealthy. (laughs) I realise that now. Yeah. Uh, So I should have listened to my dad. But um, no, but Malcolm Jones was a big influence because he was just sort of an impressive bloke. And my and my best best mate at the time was Alex Jones, and he just got us into West Ham, and I think he took us, and then we made some other mates at our school in West London, right. weirdly, where most people were either Spurs fans because at that time, even though we were in West London, Spurs it was like the when they won two FA Cups in a row and they oh, had our okay. and Hoddle. So they were like a sort of a trendy team to support. And then a lot of people supported like Liverpool and things like that. Um, but there was a, like a little collection of about four of us who were really good mates at primary school and all started supporting West Ham. I think because this one kid and his dad influenced the rest of us. Oh, wow. And then we started to go quite young. So the dads, the respective dads of my other mates who were all quite, had quite big influence on me, would take us from whether it was someone's birthday or a special treat, take the group of us all the way over to Upton Park. And once we started going, I mean, we were white, Upton Park, I know everyone thinks this about their own home ground. Yeah. By the way, I'm not completely biased because I totally don't think that about our current stadium. I think it's, whatever the opposite of an atmosphere is, that's what it's got. But Upton Park was a very special place. And especially when you're a kid, when you go there, there was a, such a distinctive image, uh, a distinctive atmosphere, vibe, and aesthetic about it. There was a, a slight menace that you found quite exciting at that age, <laughs> and I, I think we were just captivated. So that shirt wasn't a particularly successful one. I'd a couple, I'd look at the seasons because when I when you first mentioned, I did a bit of research. I assumed that you'd have picked the one that they came third in the league in, which was the yeah, yeah. Well, I nearly chose that, and then I thought, well. Talking about that season when West Ham 
you know, came quite close to winning the league is it's a real chestnut for West Ham fans to do. Right. Um, I can see how it almost feeds into other fans' cynical depiction of us because it's like <laughs> our most glorious moment that we love banging on about is one time we finished fucking third in the old first week. I mean, it's pretty sad, really. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So should we move on? We've, we've got a bit of a watershed moment, I guess, in English football, British football. It's the it's the England unbrochure at Italian 90. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like I touched on earlier, football, you know, um, it's a cliche, but it's true. Football had been through the doldrums and football wasn't particularly cool. And Italian 90 seemed to be a moment at which that changed um, because for various reasons, you know, there's something about a World Cup in Italy that just feels right. You yeah. know, a World Cup in Italy or a World Cup in Brazil, there's something about those countries where you think, yeah, this is where the World Cup should be. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so there was something about the atmosphere of it being in, in a country that is so football obsessed, but where football plays a different role in, very different role in society to, to the one it plays in Britain. You know, definitely. Definitely. It, it's, it's so it's so much more. Uh, it's kind of got a sophistication and a style about it, just naturally, mm. that English football has never and probably will never have, right? Yeah, yeah. And there was something very captivating about that. You started seeing it covered in the style magazines, like, say, in the build-up. There's a famous cover of the face with a young Kate Moss, a 16-year-old Kate Moss, on the front cover, right. wearing, wearing a football scarf in the style of the kind of Italian ultra. And there was all these different things surrounding Italia 90 that kind of took the, the nasty edge off of football as a sort of a, a place of fear and violence and nastiness and drunkenness 
and <laughs> skinheads and racism and all those other bad connotations. Yeah, and, yeah. And it and it changed it. And I, I'd been around all of that. I'd been going to West Ham since I was a small kid. And I'd been to various other football grounds as well. I was sort of, if, if I wasn't at West Ham at home, if West Ham were away, I'd be at Loftus Road or, or Griffin Park a lot of the time. Okay. You know, and so I was, I'd always been at football throughout that period. And I knew that the ugly side of it. And I wasn't one of these people who was sort of like, you know, there is something. I don't go dewy eyed about the days when people were throwing fucking golf balls with nails in at your head. Right. <laughs> I'm not one of those people. But at the same time, there was a particular kind of an atmosphere at football that no longer exists that I do. Yeah, I do. I kind of mourn it slightly. Yeah. I mean, Italia 90 during that era, for all those reasons I've said, it became cooler. And actually, this England shirt is quite a cool shirt as well. It, yeah. You know, it, it looked more continental. It was baggy, which was the continental style at the time. And most English football shirts were still sort of rather tighter. I mean, tights, right. tights back in now. But at that yeah. time, baggy was how the Italians would wear their shirts, right? right, right. And and uh, and it was baggier, this shirt. It had a collar, which was cool. Again, now I prefer collarless ones, but it had a, an actual collar. I don't know, but it seemed to have, it seemed to be quite different to previous England shirts. It seemed to be less plain than previous England shirts. And, yeah. uh, and you know, and then obviously the England team itself as well. You went from being a team, you, you kind of thought of Mark Hately, Terry Butcher. <laughs> um and those kind of players of it just being and 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 the sort of team that kind of never never had the balls to build the side around Glenn Hoddle like we should have done and had right. we done we might have won the World Cup in 1986 though like when it, when every other team successful team in the world built a, their team around one number ten and if you're lucky enough to have a genius number ten then you're in with a chance England were the only country in the world who had a genius number ten but either didn't play him at all or played him like on the wing or something like that. If England had just committed and said, this team is about playing Hoddle, we might have won the World Cup. But then suddenly Bobby Robson, and there's all these different stories about what happened. There was a mutiny amongst the players and all that stuff. Bobby Robson, after a couple of pretty turgid games, has gone, actually, just overnight, I'm going to turn us into a continental side. I'm going to play <laughs> with a sweeper. I'm going to play Gaza. Right, um, yeah. and Peter Beardsley, and Chris Waddle, and John Barnes, and Gary yeah. Lineker. Just pure, glamorous, classy. Well, I'm not sure if you can call Chris Waddle and Peter Beardsley glamorous, but you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> I mean, think of that team, though. What an amazing collection of players. Like, he played Mark Wright as sweeper, which was mad. Because, um, yeah. you know, sweepers in our minds then were, you know, the ultimate sweeper would, would have been like Beresi, right? Mm -hmm. And Mark Wright was just some looked like a big lump played for like Southampton, big ginger bloke, and he got converted to a really brilliant sweeper overnight. Yeah. And uh, Paul Parker had come through; he was amazing. Des Walker looked like arguably the best defender in the tournament. Um, Stuart Pearce still meant that we still had, and then there was injuries like, you know, so Brian Robson had to go home, but that gave David Platt a chance to come into the team. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, what what an amazing team. And they just look the business in these cool shirts. And I went to try and get one, but I think it was like the day after we'd beaten Belgium. We beat we beat Belgium in like the second round, the first knockout stage. And suddenly yeah. the country got gripped by world by England fever. Like right. a lot of tournaments, people start going, fucking England, I can't be bothered. I don't even want them to win. They're rubbish. Bobby Robson's an idiot. And then suddenly <laughs> you have a couple of good results. And you're all like, come on, England, we're going to win it. 
and yeah, we yeah. went out me and two mates went out to soccer scene on the saturday because there was a game that night and i said right we've got to go up to soccer scene and get some shirts and we went to get that and soccer scene was a smaller shop on carnaby street on a corner right at the at the um great marlborough street end of it and then eventually it moved into bringer premises up the road but at this stage it was just a small corner shop and it was fucking chaos it wasn't all ordered it was just like loads of mad shirts piled everywhere and some with a long stick to get them off the top yes exactly and only the people who worked there knew where everything was so you had to ask them and then they'd go and see yeah not like you go into shop now and everything's neatly laid out and it was this day it was a hot saturday in June or July, whatever, and people, it was fucking fr- a frenzy in there. We got the tube up to the West End, went into this shop, and it was like madness. Everyone like, but when you see like sales or like now in COVID, people fighting over toilet rolls, it was like that. And I remember <laughs> like fighting my way to the front and going, oh, "We've got the England shirts in my size," and they only had the red one, which I don't. I like a red England shirt, and a lot of people prefer it because it's what we won the World Cup in. But I yeah. really wanted that white one, but I didn't get my hands on it. I got, uh, I got the. I got the red one. Right. That's all I have had. But I've chosen for these purposes the white one because that's the one that sticks out in my mind, the one that I really love. So yeah. where, where do you stand on the club versus country stuff? Do you, do you get caught up in the whole England thing at tournaments or is West Ham always more important for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, that just doesn't compare. I mean, increasingly, the older I get, I'm not even, I'm just into, I'm not even into football. I'm just into West Ham. <laughs> It's just like an illness, isn't it? Your club. I mean, I'm just sort of like, I wish I wasn't even into West Ham, but they've got me by the balls. (laughs) I mean, there's other things I could be doing. I'd rather just be reading loads of books and improving my mind. But unfortunately, unfortunately, West Ham got me by the balls. But yeah, football's just, I'm just a bit of an old grump about football now. Is it, you know, it's, it's silly, silly. We always say on Top Flight Time Machine, it's a child's game. Even though we started out as a football podcast, we always go, never forget. Like we see things like those clips of the Arsenal TV with these grown men, some of whom look old enough to not just be fathers, but grandfathers, but having aneurysms over, you know, over losing one nil, you know, to someone. And you sort of think, fucking hell, mate, this is a child's game. This is a game with with some men running around after a bag of air. For fuck's sake, grow up. (laughs) England, I couldn't really give a shit about until... We start winning and then suddenly I'll be really into it. So I'm the, an awful Fairweather fan when it comes to England. I used to be obsessed with England when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, I always preferred West Ham, but I used to be so excited about England. Now I just like, and I think most people, certainly most people in my generation, couldn't give a shit about, um, couldn't give a shit about England in comparison to their club. But I'm terrible Fairweather fan. Like when, when Southgate's team stumbled through to the semi-finals, it's a good way of describing it. Really flukily, because yeah. like we got the easiest route to the semis ever. Then we had a really easy semi that we still lost. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So, but at the time, I remember when we'd beaten, was it Sweden we beat in the quarters, I think? We beat, or it was either Sweden or Colombia. I can't remember which way round it came. I think it was we beat Sweden. I think Sweden. we beat Colombia first, then we beat Sweden. Then, and I remember the day I was with one of my best mates and we went out to park afterwards with our kids. And we kept looking at each other. Oh my God, mate. It's coming home. We just kept, everyone just kept saying to each other that summer, didn't they? It's coming home. It's coming home. It was never coming home. But, you know, so, but yeah, not not really bothered by England. But if we play in the Euros this year and get beyond the group stage, I'll probably go out and get a three lions tattoo or something mad like that. <laughs> so, right, that's a nice, nice place to move on to your final shirt. So we're going forward a little bit into the 90s now. 
you picked the Lazio home between, I think, 91 and 93 by Umbro, the Gaza shirt. Yeah, uh, it's quite similar, actually, to the England shirt, thinking about yeah. it, isn't it? It's yeah. similar sort. That was obviously the look that Umbro adopted during that era, quite baggy with the collar yeah. and a single sort of popper button, isn't it? Yeah, and you've got the nice correctly. kind of imprint as well, which the England one had as well. So yeah, sort of shadowy kind of imprint, yeah. So um, I chose this because I, I, when I was growing up, I had cousins who lived in Rome and who I was very close to. So my dad's sister had moved to Rome when she was 16 to work as a nanny, ended up marrying a guy, having kids, uh, raising them as bilingual. But they were really close. My dad and this particular sister of his very close They'd be back and forth all the time. So they would come over to England for large parts of the summer and Christmas. And they spoke fluent English. I didn't speak a word of Italian. And they were about, they're about my age. One's exactly my age. And the old one was about two, three years older. So I really looked up to him. And they were absolutely encyclopedic with their knowledge of all football, world football. Wow. OK. If, if you were like a, kid, a football fan in the 80s, you just knew English football. Now, my son, because of FIFA and the internet and YouTube, yeah. he knows, he could name you Atletico Madrid's first team, no problem. He probably could name you players playing for Boca Juniors and Santos. You know, that's the way of the young football fan these days. Those days we knew nothing. But, and also because England weren't in Europe, English clubs weren't in Europe for a lot of the 80s. Right, so yeah. you didn't get exposed to these players. But my cousins in Italy, they were, you know, Serie A was the, the biggest, most glamorous, most brilliant league in the world. All the best players played in it, Platini, Maradona, Rummenigge, all of them. And it was just sent so impossibly sexy. And they knew everything, not just about that, but they could name all the players who played for Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich. And so I kind of, they were like football mentors to me. They lived in Rome and the older one supported Lazio. That was the local club. He supported Lazio. Yeah. His dad supported Lazio. His granddad supported Lazio. And so whenever I went to Rome, I would go and watch Lazio. And right. so I became a pretty serious Lazio fan. You know, I was like, I've been to Lazio a lot of times. I've been to the Rome Derby a couple of times, which wow. is a fucking incredible experience. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I was pretty seriously into Lazio because I just went and I got caught up there. My cousin was a serious fan. All of his mates were up. So half of them were probably less than half of them. Lots of them were Roma fans because in, right. in Rome, mainly in the actual city itself it's Roma Lazio is more of a suburban team but yeah. but anyway yeah I kind of learned to I was just saying like you know there's not enough room for all the hatred in football but unfortunately I discovered an extra hatred which was for Roma <laughs> which was just taught to me by my relatives and it's a, right. a, a pointless hatred for a club <laughs> like I knew very little about and who were miles away. But I was like, fucking yeah. Roma, you couldn't, I'd get like, it was like they were almost as bad as Millwall. Right. <laughs> when, but so I've been to a lot of games. I think I probably went to my first Lazio game in about 83, 84, when I was about okay. eight or nine. But by the time it got to the early 90s, Lazio had always been a bit of a mid table club. Yeah. Um, but then when it got to the uh, early 90s, they suddenly started becoming better. They weren't quite at the point where they could go for the title yet, but there was a, still at that stage, there was the three foreigner rule that they had in Italy. Right. I don't know if they had it here, but it wouldn't have been relevant because we didn't have any foreign players. But over there, everyone had three foreigners. And I think they signed Gaza. And it was amazing because I really liked Gaza, but I grudgingly liked him because he played for Tottenham. Right. Um, and my brother's a massive Spurs fan. 
Theo, he like does the Spurs podcast and stuff. And he like, he, you know, Gazza was like a god to him. And he'd always be going on about it. And I had to always begrudgingly admit, yeah, this, this player is fucking amazing. But I was absolutely yeah. gutted he played for Tottenham. So when he signed for Lazio, it was dreamland. Because I knew he was never going to end up at West Ham. He looked like yeah. he was going to be the best player in the world. So the next best thing was he'd go to Lazio because then I could really support him without yeah. feeling guilty. So I was so delighted when he signed for Lazio. And one Christmas, my eldest brother, Theo, bought shirts. Like I said, there's, there's me and three other older brothers. So there's four of us. And uh, my brother, Theo, I think, had probably first started earning decent money. He's 10 years older than me. And on Christmas okay. Day, he handed all three of us presents and said, open them at the same time. So we all opened them at the same time. And each of us had that Lazio Gaza shirt from 1991 with Banca di Roma as the sponsor. And I yeah. think it was like we were eight, nine, 10, 11. So my one had the number eight on it. Oh, like wow. I'm the youngest. And then... So the three of us, me and my other two brothers, Cass and Dom, both opened these and we're like, ah, oh, eight, nine and ten. And then Theo had bought them for us, ripped off his own shirt at, to reveal underneath that he was wearing the number 11 shirt of Lazio. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, hey! Because it was quite nice. The, the mutual love of Lazio was quite nice because there's four brothers who all support different teams. So two of us support West Ham. But there's sometimes, you know... It's, it's a shame, really, because, you know, we all love football, but sometimes there was disputes, so to speak. That is not necessarily, I think, aesthetically the best ever Lazio shirt. In fact, this season, Lazio's away shirt is actually claret and blue, which it's I'm really. so delighted by. And I've been strongly resisting the temptation to buy myself. up. Because if I bought it, I wouldn't wear it. You know, like, yeah. that's what you do when you get older. You buy football shirts because you just love them. But then yeah. when you actually get it, you think, what the fuck am I going to do with this? <laughs> do you know what I mean? So there you have it. Massive thanks to Sam for sharing his football kit memories with me. You can follow me, my own collection on Instagram or get in touch via Twitter or email. Please do remember to like, subscribe and share. And other than that, I guess that's it. Until next time, I'll see you later. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 